You know, there are some questions in our lives for which there are no real definitive logical answers. For example, why do we go fishing? I mean, uh, there are answers, but uh, it, it's been 10 years since I actually ate anything that I caught, you know? It was that men's uh, trip to Lake Erie that we took. We went walleye fishing and we limited out the boat. You remember that day? Oh, yeah, it was a good day. You got to eat walleye, right? But I've fished a lot between then and now and haven't kept a single fish that I caught. Just catch and release. There's no good explanation for doing that, especially because my boast is that I am the worst fisherman in the world. And there are many times I go fishing that I don't catch anything at all. And still I go and go. I don't need the meat. And still I go. So that's one of those questions in life that, why do you do that? There have to be other answers, but those answers only work for people who like to fish, right? Here's another one. Why do we ride motorcycles? There's no, sorry guys, but there, there's no good answer to that question. I mean, we already know the dangers associated with driving a car, right? Uh, we take a risk every time we get in a car where we're surrounded by a couple of tons of steel and we're strapped in and we have airbags that go off to cushion our crash and, and yet we understand there's still a risk. What is it with getting on a motorcycle where there's none of that, there's not even a seatbelt, and we fly down the road at 70 miles an hour, basically riding a fuel-injected version of exactly the same thing we rode 100 years ago, right? Why do we do that? And then you guys who don't wear helmets, what is up with that? I know, I've only been wearing a helmet for the last couple of years myself. So I have answers to that question, but they probably wouldn't work for somebody who doesn't ride, right? Let's pray. Lord, uh, here we are coming to the Word, coming to the Bible, and we have questions we have questions that we want to ask you to answer from your word, but also from a very logical, analytical perspective. We know that, that you're, you're omniscient. You know everything. We know that you've called us to use our minds and our brains when we come to you. We know that you've created us as people of reason and logic and so we dedicate this series of messages to you, Lord, just asking questions and asking for a breath of logic to come our way. We also know, Lord, that at the end of it, we can't figure our way into your presence. We can't think our way into a relationship with you. We know that at the end of it, we will fall into your arms as the one who invites us to take the leap of faith and just believe. And so come, Holy Spirit, in this time of teaching, we pray and enlighten our minds. 
but also grip our hearts, Lord. Grip the part of us that's going to live forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Dining with the Elephants is the name of this series. We're talking about the elephants in the room of the Christian faith, the questions that we often walk around and say, don't talk about that. We started with, are the Gospels historically reliable? We said, yes, they are. And then we said last week, is Jesus really the only way to heaven? How can that be? And I showed you some scripture and some logic for that. And next week, next time, we're going to talk about the question, why do we keep praying for healing when it seems like only a small number of the people we pray for are actually healed? That's a good elephant in the room. I'll try to bring some insight to that question next time. Today, we want to talk about it's kind of an extension of last week. Is Jesus really the only way? And we said yes. Um, and so the, the next logical question then is, well, what happens to people who never hear the gospel? They live their whole lives and they never hear the gospel. What happens to them? Is If the gospel of Jesus Christ is exclusively the only way to become right with God, then what happens to those who never hear it? It's one of those questions at the end of the day that's a lot easier to ask than it is to answer definitively. Okay, So I'm going to do my very best. I want to start uh, with some scripture and let's talk about what, are the, what does the Bible say about such a thing. And um, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And this is a famous narrative between, uh, substantially the first part is between Jesus and Nicodemus. And, uh, and then it ends up with some talk, answers from John the Baptist. And so that's what John chapter 3 is about. And um, it starts by saying that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now the Pharisees, they were like the super religious people of the day. But this guy somehow got smitten by Jesus, and he said he came to him at night. He snuck around. He didn't want the other Pharisees to know that he was coming to talk to Jesus. And he came to him, and he said, Lord, I know that you're a teacher from God because of the miracles that you do. He says, I'm I'm convinced. I'm persuaded. And then before he asks a question, Jesus gives him an answer. In John chapter 3, verse 3, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And there's a categorical statement. It's just one of those out there things that Jesus says. That there has to be a transfer in a person's life that you must be born again. A person must be born again to be included in the redemptive work of Christ and to be included in this kingdom of God thing that he's talking about. And that means not only heaven later, but it means the experience of the kingdom of God in the here and now as the Holy Spirit moves through his people. And so he, he, he just lays that out there very clearly. And so if we start to answer this question, what about people who never hear? We start with this categorical statement that Jesus said, unless a person is born again, they can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That it's, it's not about anything else, primarily. It's about coming to a faith relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and having a personal encounter to the point that you are born again. And he explains that it means to be born of the Spirit. To be uh, in that space where you surrender your life to Jesus 
and, and you ask him to be your savior, but that you, you surrender as an act of your will, your whole life to Jesus, and invite him to come and to indwell you by his spirit, and to walk, and you walk the rest of your life in the spirit. So it starts there. Well, then the conversation goes on, and then in John 3.16, this is probably going to be new to most of you, where it says, where Jesus said in explanation, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, that kind of sets up a different question, doesn't it? For God so loved who? The world. The world. That's a very inclusive statement, isn't it? Here he says, you must be born again. And he says that this redemptive work of Christ is for the world. It's an expression of the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. So that the gospel is for the world. It's a very inclusive kind of term. He didn't say, for God so loved the Jews. He didn't say, for God so loved the church. He didn't say, for God so loved the elect. He said, for God so loved the world. And so there's some kind of a a very pervasive sense to the message of Jesus Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we're doing is we're already starting to create a tension, aren't we? The tension is you got to be born again, but the message is for the world. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The, the will of the Lord. Did you want to know the will of God? Is, the, is it the will of God for you to be saved? Yes. For God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So we got this tension building, don't we? And then in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, when uh, the Apostle John saw this picture of heaven, this, that's why it's called the Revelation, the Revelation of Heaven, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, and they're singing this to the Lord, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood, catch this, this is past tense, he's seeing something in the future as though it's already occurred. He said, And with your blood... You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Everyone. So he's looking at that and he's seeing every conceivable people group in heaven. Every, every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. Now, I know we use the word every loosely, don't we? Every time I bring this up, you say, you know, we use it as, as everybody will be there. You do that every time. And we, we don't really mean it in an absolute sense, do we? But this is the Bible we're talking about. And this is the inspired word of God through the Apostle John. And so if he was inspired to use the word every, he wasn't just saying, I saw a lot of different kinds of people there. He was saying Every. So we have this tension. We have this tension that you must be born again, the exclusivity of the gospel that we talked about last week, and the tension is that somehow there will be at least representatives from every conceivable people group. Are you feeling the tension grow a little bit? 
Or is it just me? It's just us, isn't it? In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the Bible says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's a pretty harsh statement. Oh, it gets more detailed as that passage goes on. But then next it says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So, if you read the next verse, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And so in Romans chapter 1, it says, Every person, every person who takes a moment to reflect on the meaning of life, who takes a moment to look around, will understand that there's a God. That creation itself speaks that. That it's the logical conclusion to look around and go, this isn't an accident. This isn't just the result of an accident. It's the argument of design. It's, it's, if, if I took my watch apart, and I took all the pieces apart, and I threw them up in the air, what do you think the chances are that they would all fall back together and the watch would work? Pretty slim, right? That you would say, no, 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 there has to be some intelligence behind it. There has to be some form of intelligent intention behind it in order for that watch to go together. And what Paul's saying is, that's really what comes to every person on the planet when they pause to think about it. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims the work of His hands. So he's like saying, look around, everybody will know. Every person will know that there's a God. It doesn't get us to the gospel yet, does it? But it gets us to the, this tension that everybody has to be born again, that the gospel is for the whole world, and that everybody in the world will come up to a moment in their life where they're going to make some kind of a decision about God, whether they've heard the gospel or not. If you read on in John chapter 3 to verse 18, it says, Whoever believes in Him, meaning Jesus, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. That's specific, isn't it? So it's not enough just to look around and go, Oh, trees, there must be a tree maker. But he's saying that whoever believes in the Son of God, Jesus, and His work on the cross, the whole message of Jesus, the whole work of Christ, you're not condemned. Is that good news? You are not condemned. The Bible says in Romans, For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So when you came to Christ... It became impossible to condemn you. Why? Because Jesus made the way. Jesus took the penalty. So condemnation is off the table for you. 
But it also says, whoever does not believe in the name of God's one and only Son is condemned already. A person who has not yet come to Christ is living in a state of condemnation. Man, this is getting tough, isn't it? Because this relates to our question, what about people who never ever hear? Well, then the, the, the scenery after Jesus uh, finishes talking, the scenery shifts to John the Baptist in the same chapter. And John the Baptist has some things to say about Jesus. And uh, in the last verse of the chapter, in verse 36, he says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So because of sin in the world, the wrath of God is rightfully and righteously stored up for us. Without Christ, the wrath of God comes on us. Ephesians chapter 2 says, before we know Christ, it says we are by nature objects of God's wrath. By nature. But when we come to Christ, when we believe in Christ authentically, fully believe in Christ, don't mess around with it, believe in Christ, the condemnation is gone. But it says, whoever rejects the Son, rejects. That sounds like an action, doesn't it? Like, nope, I don't want you. A rejection of the Son. It says, will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So the question becomes to someone who does hear the gospel, are you going to receive that message authentically with your life, or are you going to reject that? There are only two options. You can't do this. You can't receive and reject the Son. Well, by that same token, it says in James chapter 4, verses 8 through 10, this is going to just add to the tension, come near to God, and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Wow. But then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he'll lift you up. So we have this call that says, "If, if a person comes toward God, God will come toward him. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, don't think that at first that's going to be, oh, happy day. Because as we draw near to God, and the wrath of God still remains on us before we come to Christ, then a great spirit of conviction comes over us, yeah? And then our choice is to do what? To say, oh, never mind, never mind, back up, back up, reject, or to grieve mourn and wail for our sin, to fall before Him and to humble ourselves before the Lord. Because if we humble ourselves before the Lord in that transaction, it says He'll do what? He'll lift you up. How many of you have been lifted up? How many of you have been through that and you've been lifted up and you know it, don't you? You know it. You've been lifted up. You've been born again. You're sons and daughters of the living God. Not through your own act, but just through your 
abject surrender, your humble surrender to the gospel. And he lifted you up. God's doing the work. But we have this concept in the scripture that says, if a person anywhere draws near to God, he will draw near to them. And this is part of that tension. But what about people who never hear? Because when you take the whole of Scripture like this, and there's just tons more we could obviously do with Scripture to support this view, you're left with a tension that you've got to be born again. If you've heard the Gospel, and you heard the Gospel, you have heard the Gospel, that you must come to Him and surrender and be born again, and be lifted up. If you reject it, the wrath of God remains on you. Okay? But what about people who haven't heard? Okay, so I've solved nothing so far, correct? Good, good. Right where I want you. Let's talk about the theology of this. And theology is just people's thinking about what the scriptures say, of course, and how it relates to the actual events of life. And what I've, what I've done for you here, from a theology standpoint, is try to give you a spectrum of, of thought regarding the place of man's will in salvation. You know, what does a person have to do? Because it relates to our question. So I've given you a spectrum here uh, with regard to that. Now this is, this is uh, theology, uh, and what I'm going to focus on is theology out of the Protestant Reformation, because prepare to gasp, we're Protestants, not Catholics, okay? That's who we are. If you're in the wrong church, you know, well then, surprise! Uh, I have no special clothes, I have no hat. I have, uh, there's nothing I can do for you for the bread and the cup. you got to do that yourself. Uh, so, you know, that's the way she rolls in the Protestant church, kids, all right? We are, we are the results of the Protestant Reformation that started, I mean, he gets credit for starting it, but there was a lot of turmoil going on when Martin Luther finally wrote down 95 problems he had with the Catholic Church and nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel in 1517. Things did not go well for Martin Luther after that because the Catholic Church was very powerful, right? But a revolution occurred. A revolution occurred. There were people who said, this isn't right. This isn't what the Bible says. He said, sola scriptura. Scriptures only. He says, I'm a... I'm, I, I am a saint and a sinner at the same time. And, he, and, he, and, he, and, and there, these guys were looking at the scriptures and saying, how did we get here with this empty church thing? And so they objected. And uh, Martin Luther was the catalyst. He was kind of the troublemaker, if you will. But he was not at all the primary theologian. He definitely contributed to the theological thought. But he was really more the poster child if you will, for the Reformation. I'm pretty sure you can still get those on eBay. Wait for it. Okay. Let's talk about these guys I have up here. We have uh, the Calvinist perspective. And uh, John Calvin over on the right here, nice, friendly-looking fellow, 
he, he was a French guy, French theologian, although he's often associated with Switzerland because he did most of his definitive work in Geneva. And um, he really uh, uh, led the way in saying, you know, how is a person really saved? Uh, and what does that have to do with, with how we live our lives and stuff? And so a, a stream of theological thought that has impacted churches to this very day is called the Calvinist perspective. Maybe you've heard of Calvinism. And Calvin and his theology can uh, be remembered with the acrostic or the acronym TULIP. TULIP. And T stands for total depravity. That as a result of original sin, the human race is totally depraved and lost without God. Okay? That the U stands for unconditional election. And that is that God elects by his sovereignty, he elects from among the human race, uh, who it is that's going to be saved. The L stands for a limited atonement, meaning that the work of Christ on the cross was not necessarily for all the people who ever lived, but for the elect. Okay? For the elect. The I stands for irresistible grace. And that is that if God chooses who's going to be saved, that if you're on the list, you're not going to be able to resist the salvation. You can resist the grace of God, he said, even as a believer, but that just makes trouble for yourself in life, if you will. And ultimately, since God is the one picking who gets saved and who isn't, you're, you're either on the list or you're not. This is the characterization of Calvinism. And then the P stands for the perseverance of the saints. Which means if you're saved, you're a saint. That's what it's, you know, that's how we, that's how, who the Bible addresses as saints, is the believers. And that your, your salvation is solid. It's rock solid. That since God picked you, since God did the saving, there's nothing inside of your will that can say, I don't want to be saved anymore. You're just saved, right? And so you can see that in Calvinism, that there's, practically no part of the human will to act, that actually is required for salvation. And that's, what, that's really what Calvinism is. Churches classified as Calvinists are uh, Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church, the, the United Church of Christ, the Primitive Baptist Church, not the, not the Southern Baptist Convention. We're going to get to them in a minute, okay? But these are churches that are substantially marked as Calvinist churches. You with me so far? Okay, let's go over to the next guy, Jacob Arminius. He was a contemporary of Calvin and responded to this by saying, nay, 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 can't be that way. He was a Dutch reformer who was also part of the Protestant Reformation, and he objected to Calvin's extreme view of the sovereignty of God and predestination. He became the leader of something that was called the Dutch Remonstrant, which was the, sub, the sub-Protestant Reformation. So it was, it was a protest within the Protestant Reformation. And uh, from that, uh, he objected to Calvinists, specifically the unconditional election and the uh, irresistible grace. Our, our Arminianism winds up by saying that, look, Jesus died for the sins of the world, 
And so that salvation, the gospel, is really readily available to all people. And that the will of man, the will of man is capable of either accepting or rejecting the gospel. That's what the substance of what Arminius was saying, okay? So that nobody gets saved by an act of their own will. You know, I mean, even Arminians said, no, God has to come in the power of the Holy Spirit and present the gospel to a person's heart, but has left within a person's heart the ability to say yes or no. Okay. Now, just for comparison's sake, I want you to tell you that's really not the end of the extremes, even in churches today. Way over on this guy is a guy named Pelagian, or Pelagius, the Pelagian perspective, Pelagian was like 1,200 years before these guys. That's why we only have a black and white picture of him. Okay? And so he was way before them. He was a British monk. The Protestant Reformation hadn't happened. But his perspective was simply this. Was that, of course, that humankind has been affected by sin. Absolutely. But remaining within man is still the ability to choose to do good apart from the work of God, and then at least theoretically to be perfect, to attain a moral perfection. So what I'm showing you is the, the width. Over here with Pelagius, it was like, oh, you can still do it. You can still do it. All the way across to Calvin, who said, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're either on the list or you're not, you know? And if you're on the list, you're going to get saved. Buckle up, basically, right? And the reason I show you Pelagian, even the Pelagian perspective, even though, put a big X over it, it's heresy. It absolutely flies in the face of the gospel itself that says we're lost and we need Christ and we're helpless to save ourselves. The reason I show you that is because there are still churches in the world and in America that are as Pelagian as they are anything else. And they hammer people about their behavior and their behavior and their behavior. And they say, and they say if you sinned this week, you're not doing what you could do because you have the capacity to be perfect. And in fact, you don't. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that for God demonstrates his own love for us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I haven't had my first perfect day yet. I was doing great till I saw you guys. And then I can't. Hello? Does anybody know what we're talking about? Good morning, yes. Nice to see you too. You know, Armenian churches are churches like the Methodists and the Nazarenes. Southern Baptists, really pretty much anything that came out of the holiness perspective. Um, and that's, that kind of uh, sets up this tension that I want you to think about. Now, how would each one of these answer the question, what about people who have never heard? Well, Calvin, uh, Pelagianism effectively negates the gospel, so let's just get rid of that one right now. Calvinism would say, since salvation is predestined individually by the sovereignty of God, that not only are those who never hear the gospel hopelessly lost to condemnation, 
But from the point of view, but from this point of view, uh, those people were actually created by God in order to be condemned. If God is still making people, and He's picking a subset of the people who He's decided are going to be saved, then by extension, He's still making people for hell. Does that hurt your brain a little? Arminianism says that those who do not hear the gospel are lost, but not necessarily without hope on at least two possibilities. One, that those who call on the name of the Lord authentically will be saved. They will be met with the gospel. That God will send the gospel. Just people who are authentically calling on the name of the Lord. God will send the gospel. And then the second possibility is remote, and some views of the end times provide a second opportunity for people to be saved kind of theology. I don't particularly subscribe to that, but I'm just telling you what the options are. Okay? We good so far? Is this fun or is it just me? Is it okay? A little different. What time is it? What time did I start? <laughs> Question is, okay, so what are we, right? So here we are in the vineyard. What are we? Well, in reality, pretty much every Christian I know lives somewhere between the middle guy and the bright guy. I don't really know any hyper-Calvinists. I don't really know any true Arminians because I see as we've progressed in our understanding of God that um, we live somewhere in between. I'm not going to tell you where to live, but I'm going to tell you where I live, okay? And then you can do what you want with that. Um, my, um, my theology can be remembered by the acronym TCURP. It's probably not going to catch on like TULIP has, but <laughs> I do believe in the total depravity of the human race. I believe the Bible when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I do, on the other hand, start to move to the left, which is the only time I move left, is, uh, Aru? Okay. Uh, I do believe that inside of the human heart is still the capacity to either accept or reject the gospel. So I believe in total depravity, but I believe that there is a fragment of the Imago Dei, the image of God, inside of every person that still has the capacity to respond to God. Can't get there on its own, but has the capacity to respond to God. Uh, my C stands for a conditioned election. I think when the Bible talks about election, it's talking about the church. And it's just talking about the people who have responded to the gospel. I think it refers more to the foreknowledge of God than it does the predestination efforts of God. That God, because he knows the end from the beginning, knows what we're going to do, right? So in that sense, there is a group that he knows, foreknows, will receive, will receive the gospel. And uh, it's conditioned... It's a conditioned election because it's conditioned by a positive response to the gospel. 
My, I do hold to the, or, or I should say, I, my you is for unlimited atonement, uh, that Jesus died, the Bible says in Hebrews, Jesus died once for all. So it's an unlimited atonement. That there isn't, there isn't any limit to the person that Jesus would save if they, through an act of their will, receive Christ. Uh, my next is an R. I believe that grace is resistible. I believe that God has given us the capacity to reject Him. Otherwise, why would that even be a problem in the Bible, right? Why would it even be mentioned? Um, and while it's difficult to resist the, God, the grace of God, yes? Have you noticed He's pretty relentless in His pursuit of you? Any of you here against your will? Go ahead, raise your hand. I'm curious. I am, by the way. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, some of us just we just we had a heart, but we just came into the world, into the church kicking and screaming, right? And uh, because God is relentless in His presentation of Himself, His love for us, He loves us and He pursues us. But I think we can resist it. And I do believe in the perseverance of the saints from this perspective. I am not Calvinist. I believe that once we are genuinely saved, that our salvation is not a fragile thing. Now, there is a provision in the book of Hebrews that says that there are people who are disingenuous in their faith, and they're not saved. They're apostate, it says. They, be, they lost their authenticity of their faith. So we got to keep it real. We can't let it get religious. we got to keep it real. we got to keep it fresh. It's a relationship. But I think that a person is not, they don't lose their salvation because they had a bad week, even a really bad week. I mean, when I was first born again into a very Arminian perspective, and I didn't understand the rules of the church, my view, I lost my salvation every week. And so my view of the gospel was smoke pot during the week and get saved again on Sunday, right? Smoke pot, repeat, get saved, and repeat, 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 right? Until I finally looked up around the church, the little church in Michigan I was in, and I decided, I think I'm the only person who smokes pot in here. I, I'm pretty sure maybe you're not supposed to do that. And things started to click, right? And so, but my whole, my whole concept was when I knew what, began to know what sin was, I felt like I was losing my salvation every week. And then I had to get myself re-saved, which I did. Very many, many times went to the altar and prayed the prayer again. Well, I've learned that it's a relationship that the responsibility is God's to preserve me. And so while I don't want to sin and I don't smoke pot anymore, don't worry. Uh, I, you know, uh, I don't want to sin that I still do. And so I do believe in the perseverance of the saints that God keeps me. How am I doing on time, Rob? Good. But you don't know where I am. <laughs> So my tulip is T-Kerp. You can uh, put that on Facebook if you want. So, what kind of position does this result in with respect to our original question, what happens to those who don't hear the gospel? Let's do the logic. Oh, yeah. Uh, the logic. I want to give you four points. In the strictest interpretation of the Bible, in the strictest interpretation, I'm a very conservative interpreter of the Bible, anyone who does not hear the gospel and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ will be condemned. That is what the Bible 
says at its core. But there's another piece of logic. Follow this. The Bible does declare that God will make himself known to every person on the earth no matter what. By creation alone. And that's just the beginning of a list that God reveals himself to all humanity one way or another because he loves us. Number three, the Bible says that when God is earnestly sought after, that he, in fact, will cause himself to be found by the one who is earnestly seeking him. He's earnestly sought after. If you read that Romans chapter 1 thing, you'll see that there are false pursuits of God that result in an immoral lifestyle. It's very clearly spelled out in there. He says, that's not what he's talking about. He's not saying anybody who has a religious thought will find God. But he's saying, draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. And so finally, my my piece of logic from my world is that since it is God who is revealing himself to man, remember, that's the difference between the gospel and religion. It's God revealing himself to man that he is not limited to our best efforts to proclaim the gospel though that is clearly his primary way of doing so. So what am I saying? I'm saying God expects us to be proclaiming the gospel everywhere. But if there is some unreached person who is calling out to God, is God really limited to our obedience? Is God really limited by our disobedience or our lack of technology to get there? Now I'm Proposing that as a radical exception and not say, oh, hey, we're good then. God will get them. Because this question, what happens to those who haven't heard, there's really another question. It's a, it's, or, or who is this question for? The real question is at the end of the day, when we ask this question, what about those who haven't heard? Is that question really about them? Or is it about us? If you're really bothered by the question, but what about the people who don't have a clear presentation of the gospel? Is it, you just really need to know that analytically? Or is something more deeply personal happening inside of you? What's the real question? Many of you know that Jim Elliott was a missionary in Ecuador, South America, who at the age of 28 was killed by 10 Quechua warriors, the very people he and four other missionaries were trying to evangelize. He had a brilliant future. He was a brilliant man. He had a future ahead of him in architecture. And he walked away from all of us, a very young man. Because he said that the gospel of Jesus was more important than life. And he demonstrated that. By allowing himself to be killed 
by the very people he was trying to reach. So that question troubled him, didn't it? What about those who never hear? That's a troubling question. And I think if you're really struggling with that, it's signaling something inside of you that I encourage you to respond to. What about those right here who have not really heard the gospel? All they've seen is a religious presentation of it. And they think they've heard it. They think they've heard it. What about? There are still unreached people on the planet in this day and age. We can Google Earth the picture of their location, but we haven't got the gospel to them yet. And it just has all week long, it has caused me to ask this question What am I doing here? I love you to bits. But I'm looking out on a wonderful group of believers. And I told Karen in the car last night, I said, I don't remember the last time I had the opportunity to share the gospel message the way I used to. Just with somebody So I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm just saying this question may be signaling something deeply personal in you. And I want to encourage you to allow that to happen. What happens to people who don't hear the gospel? The Bible says that they're lost. I have a hopeful provision for them. (laughs) I have a hopeful provision in my mind from my interpretation of the Bible for people who authentically seek him that God is not limited to my capacity to hear and obey. But Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. So the question is, what are we doing here, right? Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I have a feeling that you're stirring us. I have a feeling that the door on our cage is rattled. I have a feeling that in many cases in this room right now that the pile of stuff with which we have surrounded ourselves doesn't look so cool anymore, doesn't satisfy. We're spending our money on things that are not bread, our labor on things that are not drink. They don't satisfy us. 
of a strong belief that there are people in this room right now who are being stirred, rattled at a fundamental level about proclaiming the gospel in their neighborhoods, at their places of work, in their families. I have a feeling, a strong sense, that there are people who are stirred right now who are asking themselves the question, what am I doing here? And you're stirring them for some people in some place that is not here. I invite you, Holy Spirit, to come and to cause a response from each of us as we wrestle with that question this morning. Come, Holy Spirit. We welcome you to come and to reap a harvest of obedience from us so that all may hear, all may know, all may have their personal opportunity to say yes to Christ and his redemptive work on the cross. So come and move among us, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, I want to invite you to stand with me, please. I want to invite some prayer ministry people to come up along the side and be willing to pray for anybody, whatever your needs are. invite you to respond any way you want. Here at the vineyard, sometimes we get a little direction to it. I don't feel led to do that at all this morning, but if you'd like to come and kneel or bow or stand, whatever, you're always welcome to do that at the vineyard. But I strongly encourage you to consider this agitation that's happening in your soul. And it's, I'm supposed to tell some of you, it's not too late. I do, I do have that from the Lord. It's not too late. You're not too old, or you haven't done enough bad stuff that's disqualified you somehow from responding to the gospel or being a herald of the gospel. So just follow the stirring of the Father's love and call on your life today, okay?